0: Well, good morning. Just want to pray for Pastor Don this morning as he's away with Nancy, getting a time of much-needed rest. So thankful for that opportunity for them. Our text is going to be Luke chapter 18, so feel free to go ahead and turn there. And building on the theme of humility that Pastor Don introduced last week with Psalm 131, we'll see in this text that humility is actually... Uh, an essential characteristic in our relationship to God. There's a lot of questions that Christianity deals with and answers, uh, but perhaps the most basic of them is this question. How can human beings be right with God? Of all the questions you want to be able to answer, this is it. See, there's coming a day when all of us as individuals, we'll stand before God, and He will judge us. And we're tempted to deceive ourselves from time to time in thinking that somehow we'll all be there together. And as long as we're just a little bit better than the person standing next to us, then things will be good to go, and we will get into heaven, so to speak. That's a terrible lie to believe. When we stand in judgment before God, we stand alone. There will be nowhere to hide and no one standing next to you to compare yourself to. It's just you and God. So what are you going to say to him when he holds you to account? What will the verdict be when you stand in the divine courtroom? Thankfully, God hasn't left us with uncertainty, as this question goes, uh, but we can know for certain today what that verdict will be. So let's look at our passage, Luke chapter 18. Beginning in verse 9, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this text we see two problems, two prayers, and two pronouncements. The two problems are laid out for us in verse 9. Some were confident of their own righteousness. That is, they were self-righteous. The second problem is they had a disdain for other people. They looked down on everybody else. Now, these may be two distinct problems. they're they're interconnected and in some ways inseparable. We'll talk more about self-righteousness in a few minutes, but for now it's it's helpful to look at the second problem as in some ways, the key to understanding not only the passage itself, but as we seek to diagnose our own hearts. If we've been in church a while, we may we may not be conscious of self-righteousness. We may know enough of the the doctrines of Christianity. To, uh, to at least deflect that label in our minds. But if we think about how we view other people, especially those that we might think are morally inferior to us, then that might lead us to the root problem of self-righteousness. If we consistently look down on those who are further behind in their battle against sin, or perhaps battling sins that we've never battled ourselves, or maybe just people we perceive to be less spiritual, than us, that we may be able to accurately diagnose ourselves as self-righteous. But Jesus knows our tendency to do this, and so he graciously tells us this parable. So the two prayers, notice they both come to the temple to pray. They both seek an audience with God. They want to say something to God. First comes the Pharisee. Now, if you haven't read much of the Bible or know much of the background, Pharisees were an ancient Jewish sect that were uh, distinguished by their zealous commitment to following the Jewish law. So think Ten Commandments, right? The, The moral law especially, but even the ceremonial laws as well. So let's look at this Pharisee. What does he think of God? Well, he doesn't seem to think much of him at all. If you notice in the prayer, he addresses God but he quickly moves on to speaking about himself. Now, we can actually diagnose a few things just by that approach, but for now, to stick with the question, it's fair to say that he understands God to be a creator, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. So he understands God created not only him, but everyone else too, and perhaps endowed him with a moral compass that he didn't give to other people. He thinks simply by creating him the way that he is, that he deserves commendation from God. And also implicit in his prayer is that he understands God to be a judge. That's why he lists his moral achievements and presumes that God will be pleased with him. He's so confident that he stands right up in the presence of God. What does he think of himself? Well, he has quite a lot to say about himself. Notice the four First-person statements. I give thanks to God. I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of everything. So he views himself as a very moral man. And he's not wrong. He is a very moral man. As you look at the list there, robbery. Robbery is wrong. I think we could all agree on that. Doing evil is wrong and all that that sort of entails. Uh, Committing adultery is wrong. So his religion has been able to do something for him. He's been able to abstain from these destructive ways of living. That's a good thing. But he also views himself as going above and beyond. This Pharisee is the A-plus student, you might say. He says he fasts twice a week. Well, the law only said that a person had to fast once a year on the annual Day of Atonement. So it's extra credit that he fasted twice a week. And again, fasting is a good spiritual discipline. We ought not look down on the fact that he fasted regularly. That's a good thing that more of us could avail ourselves of. But he also says he gives 10% of everything he has. Again, above and beyond what the law required. The law required a tenth of your produce and your livestock. But this man says, I give a tenth of everything that I own. So he's a very generous man, certainly more generous than many of us would be. So he definitely has something to boast about, but not before God. And this statement about going above and beyond is really where he sets himself up apart from the other men, the ones who are below him on the moral ladder. And this tells us what he thinks of others. He disdains them, which Jesus already told in verse 9. He looks down on them from his position on the moral high ground. He can only see others' faults and weaknesses in comparison with his own purity. They are the ones who need to beg God for mercy, certainly not himself. Everything this man thinks that he needs to stand in the presence of God, he finds within himself. Jesus tells us this fictional story of the Pharisee to illustrate how quickly we forget his own teaching. Look back with me at chapter 17. In verse 10, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. That's the requirement of the law, right? The law was never meant to say, do these things and God will be pleased with you. The law was given to show us our own depravity, right? There's a reason that many of the Ten Commandments are stated in the negative. Thou shalt not commit adultery, not steal, not murder, right? Because our heart's tendency is to do those things, right? We're drawn to those things, and the Bible, the law, set up a boundary for us. It said, this is the standard. Don't cross it. But this man finds great pride in his keeping of the law. That's the Pharisee. Now we turn to the tax collector And again, some background for those who may not be as familiar with the Bible. Uh, First century tax collectors were not exactly like modern day IRS employees. Uh, The Romans didn't have an infrastructure to collect taxes throughout the empire, so they would auction off the role of tax collector to the one who would, well, essentially the highest bidder, but who would pay at least the estimated tax for that region. So the only way a tax collector could make money was by collecting more than what he paid in to the government. Right? So by nature, it was a, a, a profession built on greed. As one commentator put it, an honest tax collector would have been a starving tax collector because you only would have gotten what you paid in. So there's no profit margin there. So socially, these people would have been hated. Right? These would have been the outcasts, as anybody in our culture is who cheats others out of money. But it's important to note in chapter 3 of, of Luke's gospel, John the Baptist is preaching repentance, and he doesn't categorically condemn tax collectors. He simply says, don't collect more than you're owed. So that's some background. What does the tax collector think of God? Well, he thinks a great deal about God. For one, God is not just mentioned as the one he's speaking to in passing, but he truly is the subject of his prayer. The tax collector views himself as the recipient or the object of the prayer. And you can detect a little bit of what he thinks about God from his posture. He stands far off, won't even look up to heaven. That would have been the common Jewish posture in prayer was to look up. God is in the heavens, but he doesn't lift his eyes. So he understands God's holiness and his majesty. Not only does he stand at a distance, but he beats his breast sign of genuine contrition and sorrow for sin. That's what repentance looks like. Uh, A lot of us like the idea of repentance because it's necessary for salvation, but we also like to save a little face, right? We also like to maintain a little bit of our own reputation along the way. This man isn't concerned with that. True repentance is coming to God and understanding your sins. And he comes to God because he knows that it's God he must deal with sooner or later, as is the case for us all. And he knows, as the writer to the Hebrews would state later on, that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He knows the demands of God's law. We must be holy as God is holy, perfect as he is perfect. This man understands how far off he is from the glory of God, and so he stands far off. He doesn't dare approach God confidently. But he doesn't just see God as holy and majestic, though he is those things. He also understands that God is merciful. Exodus 34, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read the passage for you. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's how God revealed himself in the Old Testament, and he revealed himself that way to Moses, and the Bible says Moses knew God face to face, as intimately as it gets for a human being. And so Jesus presents this fictional character, the tax collector, to show us this man gets it, this man understands not only is God holy and majestic, but he's also merciful. And if you're seeking mercy, there's only one place where you'll obtain it. He throws himself on the mercy of the God who is merciful, who forgives iniquity. Well, what does he think of himself? He's certainly humble. In fact, in the original language, there's a definite article where he says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It's actually the sinner. And for various reasons, translators went with a sinner, I think, so that people understood it wasn't just tax collectors who were sinners. Right? But he understands in God's courtroom, I stand alone. I don't think of myself as, well, we're all sinners and therefore I should be acquitted simply out of virtue of being among the masses, right? He's the sinner in the courtroom of God. And that tells us immediately what he thinks of others. He doesn't count himself among the throngs of sinful creatures in need of God's mercy. When he comes to do business with God, he comes alone. He doesn't give any thought to others. So what about you? The Bible is a mirror to the soul. It teaches us about what's in our own hearts. And Jesus holds up these two characters before us for us to see ourselves or elements of ourselves in them. And it's important as we consider ourselves in light of this parable that we stop at verse 13. See, a lot of us want to go on to verse 14 and and get to the pronouncement, but we got to stop at verse 13 first to see what really makes sense of our pattern of living. So are are you more like the Pharisee? Proud, confident, not giving much thought to God's justice and God's demands of us, but mainly just considering I'm better than others, and so uh, God would do well to give me a commendation. Would you consider yourself one who would come into God's presence with a resume of righteous deeds? Here's all my good works, God. This is why I should be admitted into your presence. Don't deceive yourself as though the divine courtroom is like the courtroom of your mind. Is your life characterized by constantly justifying your own actions or do you take responsibility for them? Are you more concerned with saving face in front of others or admitting that you're wrong? Are you constantly putting others on trial in your mind and finding them wanting, all the while acquitting yourself? Or do you come humbly like the tax collector? Again, think about verse 13 for a moment, right? We all want to get to the label, right? I'm saved. I'm justified. I know that, right? And I'm moving on to other things. I think we need to slow down for a minute and examine our pattern of living because Christianity, the Christianity of the Bible is evidenced by a life lived. It's not just a label that we claim and then move on living however we want. So as you think about coming before the presence of God, are you humble? Are you maybe not as confident Contrite. Contrition is really a, a genuine sorrow for sin, right? Anybody is sorry for sin when they get caught or can be sorry for sin when it causes negative consequences that they don't want to deal with. But do you have a genuine sorrow for sin? Are you saddened by the mere fact that you offend the God who made you and gives you everything you have to enjoy? Do you have a realistic vision of the divine courtroom and the sentencing guidelines? Do you not really consider how you stack up against others? There's no room in your mind to hold your own trial because you've got enough to worry about when coming to your own trial before God. Many people want the label Christian, but they don't want the lifestyle that accompanies it, the kind of humble, broken contrition that this tax collector exhibits. Finally, verse 14, now we come to the two pronouncements. If they present themselves before God, the judge, of course, there's going to be a verdict. And the verdict, let me say this, is is shocking to our sensibilities. Even people who have been in church a long time, we get this sense of morality about us. Like, the good people are the ones whom God is going to be pleased with, and the bad people are the ones that God is displeased with. But we, we fail to reckon with God's own standard of justice. We fail to reckon with the fact that we're all the bad people, that we're all sinners. Some of us might have the facade of goodness about us and morality about us, but to the heart, we're all opposed to God. There's none who is righteous. Dick Lucas, who's a British pastor, had a good comment on the shocking verdict in this courtroom. He said, for those who hear this parable, let the shock be today and not on the final day, right? Don't be shocked when you come into the presence of God with a resume of righteous deeds and pretend as though he ought to commend you for it, right? Let the shock be today and learn to deal with it. So the tax collector, he is the one who is justified and the Pharisee is not. It might even be a little bit easier on our sensibilities if we understood, well, the tax collector is justified because God is merciful, but the Pharisee is also justified because he's been a really good person, right? Sometimes we like to think in those categories too. We can't imagine how how God would be displeased with really good people. And yet that's a misunderstanding of the the justice of God. So the tax collector is justified. Well, on what basis is the tax collector justified? Is it simply God arbitrarily saying, I like this person's humility and I don't like that person's pride? Look down with me at verse 31 of chapter 18. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. The beautiful thing about Scripture is the storyteller, the judge, he's also the substitute. Jesus is willing to take the penalty for sin. The tax collector doesn't get off simply because he's humble and contrite. There are a lot of humble sinners out there, but only the one that turns to Jesus will be saved. Jesus died so that people like the tax collector, people like you and me, can be justified in the sight of God. The cross. Which we celebrate as Christians is not just about a physical uh, suffering and execution. The cross is about Jesus enduring the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can be blameless in God's sight. The cross is about Jesus extending to us the mercy of God. Now, why would Jesus endure all of that? Why would he endure the mocking? the insults the physical abuse why would he who never sinned subject himself to the punishment for sin he did it for us he did it because he loves us the same god who has a standard of justice to which no human being can attain is the same god who humbles himself right jesus is the ultimate example of humility he humbles himself in our place right We're the ones who deservedly ought to be humbled and carry our cross to the place of execution under the wrath of God. And yet Jesus steps into our place. He takes that shame and that punishment for us so that we can stand in the presence of God. The phrase that the tax collector even uses, be merciful to me or have mercy on me, it's not the normal word used for mercy. It has to do with propitiation. It has to do with averting the wrath of God or satisfying the wrath of God. When Jesus uses this word in the tax collector's mouth, he's carrying with it a comprehensive view of Exodus 34. Yes, God is merciful, but he's by no means going to acquit or clear the guilty. The guilty still need to be punished. So how are they going to be punished? Jesus takes that punishment for them. All sin will be accounted for. Either your sins remain on you apart from Christ or Christ has already dealt with your sin and you need not fear the justice of God. Both the tax collector and the Pharisees were were sinners who deserved the guilty verdict and the sentence of eternal punishment. But only one of them understood he needed the mercy of God. If you're here today, let me tell you, you are in need of the mercy of God. Whatever your sins are today, God knows them. God's going to judge every secret thing. There's nothing hidden from his sight. But he is merciful. The God who knows everything and the God who is going to judge everything is the same God who offers us mercy in Christ. You can't try to overcome your bad by doing good or by trying to somehow escape the judgment. It has to be on the basis of what Christ has done. So throw yourself on the mercy of God, and you'll find mercy. The tax collector went home justified, not on the basis of what he had achieved, but what he had received. It wasn't the degree of his humility that ultimately justified him. It was the mercy of God that he clung to in desperate faith. In clinging to the mercy of God, he found mercy. The judge offers us the verdict. He says, this man went home justified, righteous in the sight of God. And that verdict can be true of us today. The second pronouncement, the principle. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. This phrasing is what Bible scholars call a divine passive. So in other words, a passive statement is made. Something is going to happen to people, but the subject is not stated. Who's going to do it? And oftentimes in Scripture, it's God who's going to do it. So when you read this statement, here's how it ought to read in our minds. Everyone who exalts himself, God will humble. And he who humbles himself, God will exalt. Isn't that good news? If you're here today and you feel humbled by your sin, you can picture the divine courtroom in your mind and you're, you're fearful of that. Remember that God will exalt the humble. Are you in the habit of exalting yourself? If you do it before other people, your heart is likely set to do it before God. But the beauty of this story Look back at verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness. If you're here today and you're self-righteous, Jesus still loves you. Jesus still wants you to be saved. If he wanted to just withdraw from those who exalted themselves, he would have withdrawn from all of us. But instead he comes to us and he speaks kindly to us. And he pleads with us, as if grabbing us by the lapel, to say, snap out of it. Do you understand what your life is set to be in position before God? He wants us to be saved. He doesn't look down on the self-righteous. He wants to be merciful to you too. But you can't remain in your self-righteousness. If you show up on judgment day thinking somehow you've got any leg to stand on of your own merit... It will not go well for you on that day. Instead, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and you'll find mercy. He will exalt you at the proper time. But if you're here today and you're humbled, you're overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, if you feel like you can't even lift your eyes to heaven for fear of God's judgment, take heart. God is the lover of your soul and the lifter of your head hear him say to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He sent his own son, Jesus, to die in your place. And when you look at the cross, see the execution you deserved, but then see the mercy of God on display. I love the lyrics of some of the old hymns. I think in some ways, older songs were more didactic or instructive than a lot of contemporary songs are. But The second and third verses of Rock of Ages. Verse 2 Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. In other words, you can't do it on your own. You can't present your resume of righteous deeds as though God is going to commend you for it. That's not how it works. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Humility by itself doesn't save. Again, there are a lot of humble sinners out there. But humility and casting yourself on the mercy of God is what does. And that's how he concludes the verse Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Our Father, we stand before you today, not as those who are proud of our righteousness, but as those who have been humbled in your presence. Father, even as we consider our past week, we know that we've done those things we ought not to have done, and we've failed to do those things that we ought to have done And we are in great need, desperate need for your mercy. God, I pray for those who have trusted you for a long time, who have for a long time found themselves in the position of the tax collector. I pray that you would hearten them today. Give them confidence that on the last day they will hear justified as the verdict. But I pray for any here who are still trusting in their their merits, their good deeds, that you would humble them today so that they might not be humbled on the last day. Give them grace to see Jesus clearly and the mercy that flows from his veins. We pray in his name. Amen.